Welcome to episode 55 of This Week in Legal Blogging, presented by Lexblog. And if you don't know who Lexblog is, it is home to the world's largest community of legal bloggers and the industry-leading provider of professional blogs and turnkey digital publishing solutions to lawyers and the world's largest law firms for more than 17 years. I'm Bob Ambrogi. I am the host of this podcast. I also write the legal technology blog, Law Sites, and have another podcast, Law Next, where we talk about innovation in law. And today, on This Week in Legal Blogging, I am very happy to have as my guest Eric Fader. Eric is a partner with Rivkin Radler in New York, where he primarily represents healthcare providers. Uh, and we don't care about any of that. All we care about here is that he writes a blog, <laughs> which is why we have him here. Uh, and he writes the blog. It's not true, Eric. I care about him. But uh, he writes the blog Rivkin Rounds, which you can find at rivkinrounds.com, where the tagline says it offers your, quote, prescribed dose of health law news. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bob. Uh, thanks for having me. And in fact, I really do care about your practice. So why, why don't we start there? Why don't, we, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about, about your practice and what you do? I'm sure you care deeply. Uh, happy to give you the condensed version. I uh, started out in the 80s as a corporate and securities lawyer. And then in the late 80s, I was at a mid-sized Manhattan firm and we started representing some radiologists who were, and some businessmen who were forming some of the first uh, privately owned MRI facilities in the state of New York. And between uh, doing their corporate work and the regulatory work that came out of that when uh, when the Stark Law and the anti-kickback statute um, revisions came out, and then when HIPAA came along in 1996, before we knew it, we were healthcare lawyers. But I was I was doing this stuff really before it was even a recognized legal specialty. Now uh, now that healthcare is is such a mainstream topic and something that politicians fight about and the public is concerned about. Uh, it's it's uh, now I can say that I'm a healthcare lawyer and people actually sort of know what that means. Whereas originally people thought I uh, represented patients in fights against hospitals or medical malpractice or other right. things that I don't do at all. But right. uh, I used to describe it as corporate work for doctors, and now it's regulatory and transactional work of all types. Um, right. And, and probably not only do they now, you know, now are they interested, but they're probably, uh, their ears probably perk up a little bit in, 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 in these times uh, that you're a healthcare lawyer. Uh, yeah, uh, sometimes, right. Sometimes people, uh, well, well, now, of course, people think that I do something involving COVID and I, well, my, my clients are all very concerned about COVID, whether they're, yeah. whether they're providers or insurance companies or hospitals. But uh, yeah, so people, there are still mis misconceptions on, on what I do, but it's a lot, uh, it's a lot easier now than, than uh, being at a cocktail party in the late 80s, trying to tell people what I did and having them all just skulk away from me like, you know, I don't want to hear that. Yeah. Not to mention that nobody goes to cocktail parties anymore, but someday we'll start doing that again. I think. <laughs> Hopefully. So I mean, this, so maybe this is a naive question, but has COVID affected the issues that you deal with uh, in your practice? Oh, it, for sure. It has. Uh, one of the focuses of my practice these days is telehealth and covid uh, was really a blessing in disguise for for the telehealth field because 
it made uh, it, it created more advancements in in telehealth than the field had had uh, at at any time prior. People recognized uh, you can you can obtain professional services, whether they're medical services or behavioral health, without having to physically go into a doctor's office. And both the federal government and most, I think virtually all of the states, or maybe maybe in fact, literally all of the states enacted some sort of legislative or regulatory change or promulgated some sort of waiver that made the practice of telehealth uh, much easier than it had been prior to COVID. So, yeah. uh, so, so that's one thing. And then of course, uh, there are a lot of other legal issues that, that, that affect uh, all clients, including, including physicians and other healthcare clients, including insurance issues, there are labor and employment issues. Can you, uh, whether you can fire somebody who refuses to go to work or whether you could Im, uh, impose mask mandates and all the all these things, uh, including what the Supreme Court was uh, was ruling on um, last week. Just last week. So, yeah. but but my biggest my biggest practice focus these days. Well, there are a couple, but telehealth is definitely oh, one of them. And that's interesting. Uh, and COVID and, and is, are the issues there primarily around um, uh, licensing, uh, similar to you know in, in law practice? I'm I'm licensed in Massachusetts. I can't practice in Connecticut or New York. Uh, yes. Are those the same kinds of issues? That's 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 a big one. Uh, the ability of practitioners who are licensed pretty much anywhere in the in the United States to practice across state lines. Right now, New New York, for example, since I'm sitting in New York, um, there's a waiver that allows anyone who's licensed anywhere in the U.S. or in Canada or in certain other states, uh, in certain other countries rather that uh, that the Department of Health recognizes. These people can practice. Um, across state lines into New York. And very often the states will allow it, not just for telehealth, but for in-person practice as well. Another thing that has, uh, that has happened since COVID is audio only phone calls are now very often permissible and, and reimbursable as the provision of a telehealth service. Whereas prior to COVID, Maybe uh, you the, the state required a uh, a video component to the call as well. The other thing is the the federal government has softened up the Medicare requirements for reimbursing telehealth. So uh, patients can now receive services from their homes, whereas before maybe they had to go to a facility or th there was there were very very specific rules on what. Uh, a telehealth service had to have in order to be reimbursable by a federal program, which now, um, as I said, Medicare, Medicaid, and many of the commercial insurance companies are are much more flexible on the on on these requirements. Oh, that's really interesting. What? How big is the is the health law practice at, at your firm? Are you it, or are there others involved in it as well? <laughs> uh, I, I'm definitely not it. We we have. Um, if you define uh, the health services practice group broadly, we have uh, well over 20 people in it. Huh. If you define it more narrowly, we have probably 10 or 12 people who focus uh, the, the the large majority of their time on on health services, whether, whether it's representing, uh, as I do, physicians and other non-institutional clients, mostly. 
uh, or we, we have some, some of the lawyers in our group do a lot of institutional work, represent um, some of the major hospitals in, in the New York, um, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area. Yeah. You are the second lawyer from your firm that I have had on this podcast. I had Lou Vlahos uh, on back in September 2021. Uh, he was a tax attorney there and who had kind of just launched his blog because he had only just joined the firm uh, fairly recently, uh, but he had actually been blogging for a while elsewhere. Uh, so this was a, a kind of a relaunch for him. It looks like you have sort of a similar story in a sense that you've launched this the the blog that you're currently doing fairly recently, but but you've been writing for some time. I have, and again, I'll I'll give I'll give you and everyone else the condensed version to prevent the eye glazing uh, phenomenon. But I I did some writing and speaking to clients and at conferences about health reform. Uh, dating back to Bill Clinton's health care plan in 1993, and then uh, and and obviously there was no uh, there were no blogs in 1993, but um, in 2012, a colleague and I at the firm I was with at that time started a blog. It was really more of an, a biweekly newsletter because it didn't have a uh, uh, it, there was there was, it was one way. It didn't have a the opportunity for, didn't offer the opportunity for people to comment on it. Mm-hmm. And we had three items in each edition, and we did it. Uh, we did it every, generally every two weeks. It was very heavy on the Affordable Care Act at that time, and targeted toward uh, potential institutional clients at that firm, because that firm didn't believe that it was possible to build a decent healthcare practice without hospitals, which I, I think we uh, a few of us have proven them wrong. But. Um, it was a battle to keep it interesting because uh, my my co-author liked obscure rules that were applicable to hospital reimbursement. And I, I couldn't imagine who would be actually even reading this blog and caring about it. So when I changed law firms in 2013, I started the healthcare blog at that firm. And over the, over the five years that I was at that firm, we had over 500 posts most of which were written by me. When I went to Rifkin Radler in 2018, I said to the firm, I will run your blog uh, and don't worry, it's, it'll, be, it'll be great. It'll bring a lot of attention <laughs> to the health services group. And initially I, I got a lot of resistance. Uh, the the huh. firm, firm management and the marketing people said, no, you know, it, blogs don't work. We, do, we send out client bulletins now. Uh, blogs don't work because people lose interest. People, uh, you don't keep up with them. And I said, no, no, no. This thing—they don't not think fail. they lose interest in client alerts. <laughs> Talk about <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's right. But so I said, this thing is not going to fail on my watch. Don't worry. Uh, so eventually, they said okay. And and once the marketing people got behind it, they did some really nice things like those, like like the cute tagline that you read before, and and. Uh, um, we have a, a, a very nice logo with a with a um, with a clipboard that doctors carry on their rounds, and because it's Rifkin rounds, right? So yeah, with with a little stethoscope in the logo. So um, so now, fast forward three years after we started it, I, I think everyone now believes that that it is possible to do a blog, not have it 
fall by the wayside like my former firm's blogs have and uh, and and keep it interesting for clients, not just I, I try to avoid those obscure hospital reimbursement um, updates because, well, first of all, I, I try to make it interesting for for my clients, my potential clients, and of course the the clients and others in the firm, and we have we have clients that run the whole gamut of of different types of practices. Some are institutional, some aren't. Uh, people like sometimes reading about what the large technology companies are doing in healthcare. So so I'll I'll occasionally have a post about Amazon or Apple or consumer wearables and other other types of things we 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 dabble in cannabis occasionally i mean in the blog that we don't dabble in cannabis <laughs> it's uh, okay we don't judge here <laughs> so um so we try to keep it keep it broad keep it varied keep it interesting and i i think it's i think everybody recognizes that it's been a, a really good marketing tool for the firm yeah so in september of 2021 which is actually the same month when i interviewed lou uh you transitioned over onto the LexBlog platform. Is that what happened? Because you posted at that point a kind, a kind of a welcome to our new blog message. Exactly. You'd already you'd already been blogging at that point, and exactly. it even came, with, came right. with a T-shirt giveaway, right? It did. It did. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Lou, Lou did one too. But yeah, we had uh, uh, we didn't we didn't have a nice caricature of me on the T-shirt like like Lou had on his, but but we we had our T-shirts packed in a little capsule that looked like some sort of very large prescription medication. Oh, that's cool. And uh, yeah, we started we started the blog at Rifkin, uh, the health law, uh, Rifkin Rounds in um, in the fall of 2018. And then, as you said, in in September of this of last year, we transitioned to LexBlog. And was that just to have a more robust platform or was there some other reason for that, for moving? Well, I don't know how you were doing it before, but but why did you move it? Yeah, that that was really it to have uh, to have to have the better platform. Um, we it was housed on the law firm's website before, and and also the marketing people were reticent to call it a blog. We called it an electronic newsletter. So now yeah. we have fully embraced our blogness <laughs> by 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 signing on with LexBlog, and and uh, and we 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 really like the platform. Uh, I handle uploading the posts and the back end is really, is really, uh, very convenient. So it's, it's been a good, a, a good switch. Yeah. Well, I don't want to get you in trouble with the marketing people there, but have, have, have they come around? Have they seen the light on blogging at this point? Oh yeah, they definitely have. Yeah. And why do you think that is? I mean, what, what's, what has been the result of blogging, uh, that, that marketing people would have liked? I mean, what, what have they seen? Well, uh, I whenever I have a success story, I always email it to them. Like I'll say, here's here's a client from the state of Washington who who found something that I wrote about two years ago, and now he's a client. Or uh, or here's here's an email from a current client saying, I really I really enjoyed reading this this blog. Thanks for telling me about this. Or again, these days, not not to not to belabor the telehealth point, but there's a lot of existing clients of ours and potential clients of ours that are increasingly recognizing that they need to be doing something in telehealth. And we, we have lots of telehealth content on the blog. So I I'm always looking for, uh, for, for something that will attract, attract the attention of our clients or potential clients. 
if there's something mainstream that somebody can get from CNN or the New York Times, I, I don't usually try to compete with the mainstream press. Like, for example, I didn't cover uh, last week's Supreme Court developments. I figured, huh. okay, people can yeah. get that elsewhere. Yeah. yeah. Do you have, are there um, other, are there a lot of other, or are there a few other healthcare blogs, healthcare law blogs out there? Uh, there are, yeah, there, there are, there are some that are, that are, uh, updated pretty, pretty faithfully. Um, some, some are run by law firms that I won't name. Others are run by, um, uh, uh trade associations or, or think tank kind of, kind of entities. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it, it does. I, I, I'm sympathetic to, uh, to, to firms who have let their blogs go fallow and who, where, where something is not updated for, for a couple of months at a time, because it's hard. It's, yeah. it's, uh, you really have to have somebody committing to it because, uh, if, if the other members of my group get busy, then the, I very likely am going to have to create the posts myself that, that week, because you, the billable work has to get done. But, um, but by by putting myself out there and saying, okay, this is you know, I'm I'm making a declaration that this blog will not fail. You you kind of need somebody uh, like that to uh, to really stand behind it. Now, yeah. Lou Vlahos, on the other hand, he has he's just he just loves writing. He has a very different approach from mine. He'll write he'll write a multi-page blog post with footnotes and it. It could be a journal article if he yeah. just changed the way he phrased it a little bit, right. made it a little more scholarly as opposed to uh, he likes sprinkling in a lot of humor and 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 real world examples. Whereas my view on the blog is it could be as as little as two or three paragraphs or four, a couple of sentences a piece, a quick hit just to get people's attention. Here's something I'd like you to know about. And if you want to know more, then contact me offline. Yeah. Uh, we don't usually say that, but it's it's kind of unspoken. Clients right. recognize, yeah. uh, you know, if, if they want to know more about about a topic, then they'll then they'll contact one of us. So, so I'm not really. It, it's really just keeping people informed on what's going on, rather than trying to be a treatise on a topic. Yeah, but as you say, it's hard to it's hard to keep up that consistency. It's hard to keep up with the topics. I, I noted that you have multiple bylines on your blog, so you're not the only one contributing to it. Who else is contributing to it, and and how do you coordinate with with those others? Yeah, we don't we don't have a formal process. Uh, I I have uh, over the last few months we have some young associates who have been very helpful, who have. Uh, who have kicked in uh, several blo several blog posts apiece, and um, I every once in a while we'll have a topic, and I'll and I'll suggest that somebody write about it based upon either uh, either something that they wrote for me once before, or just because I know if someone ever uh, sends around an email saying, "Hey, I have some availability if anyone needs needs help with work this week." I'll say, aha, I don't have any work for you, but here's a good topic to write about for the blog. But it's, it's very informal. We don't, um, uh, one of your other guests said that they actually have a schedule and they go around, around the firm and people, yeah. people, uh, this week it's your responsibility. Next week, it's somebody else. We don't really have that, but
but but I like I said, I have been getting some some good participation from the young and enthusiastic associates, particularly lately. Yeah. Uh, and, and to what extent do you do you or don't you insert your own perspectives or views into, into what you're writing about? Ah, uh, good question. Uh, well, yes, I. If there is some sort of settlement, if if a if a medical practice or a facility enters into into some sort of settlement for a HIPAA violation, I sometimes can't refrain from saying this was a really stupid thing for them to have done, <laughs> or uh, or editorializing at the end of the post saying if you're going to violate HIPAA, then for God's sake don't lie to the office for civil rights when they come in to investigate your violation, things like that. Um, I, I don't usually editorialize too much. Occasionally I might, I might allow a little bit of snark to keep, to creep in, uh -huh. but, uh, but I don't usually overtly editorialize and we definitely stay away from sensitive areas. So yeah. if, if there's something that's political, we we stay away from the political aspects of it. If there's something that uh, that could potentially upset or concern one of our clients, or or in an area that that we we just feel we have to tread lightly, then then we're careful. But uh, like I said, things if someone does something really dumb, I'll call them out on it in a, mm -hmm. in a hopefully and not too. In a, in a professional way, like they really should have thought long and hard before doing blank, something yeah. like that. So more in the form of offering a, a takeaway or a lesson learned or, or something like that. Exactly. That's right. That's yeah. right. And, and if, and if one of our clients uh, was unaware of, of the reason that that was a problem, well, hopefully after they read the post, they'll, they'll think twice about doing it going forward. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you, you touched on this a little bit, but how do you, uh, you, you have, do you have a, a routine around this at all? I mean, do you have a regular schedule for when you want to post or you have a regular schedule for how, you know, checking the various sources that might be inspiration for something to write about? How do you, how do you go about doing all that? I, I subscribe to seven or eight newsletters in the healthcare field, as well as legislative alerts and things like that. And I'm, I'm always looking for interesting topics. Um, having the time to actually write about them or having one of my colleagues have time available to write about something is really what dictates the schedule. I, I try to make sure that we, we have at least two or even, even three posts a week in a given week if it's not that busy. But if things get busy, then sometimes a week will go by and I'll say, oh, damn, we really we haven't done anything since last Thursday. I really need to put something up. So there is no set schedule, um, and, um, but definitely you try to you try to be as consistent as possible. And obviously, certain developments are important enough that we'll put up a blog post and we might also send out a client alert. And sometimes yeah. the blog posts can be client alerts or the client alerts can be blog posts. We uh, we repost things on LinkedIn and Twitter if they're important enough. So so with with social media these days, if if there's something important or there's something that we're that we're particularly happy about once we've written about it, then we make sure that we blanket the world with it. Yeah. 
you've been doing this since, what did you say, 2012, when, when you first started doing uh, some form of a blog. Um, what ha has your style of writing evolved or have you learned anything about how, you know, what you think makes for a successful or optimal blog post? Yeah, uh, definitely. We, um, I, I think again, brevity is, is better. Uh, and if, if I'm bored writing it, then chances are people are going to be bored reading it. So, uh, so we try to we, we try to keep it very uh, very conversational, no jargon, no un unexplained abbreviations, no posts about things that I think our clients or potential clients are likely to care about. So we, um, although healthcare is in large part federal or national. Mm -hmm. Rifkin uh, Radler is a regional regional firm, so we we do focus on New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, the Northeast generally. I, I'm not likely to write about some really interesting case in Idaho, even though I may find it uh, to be a really interesting case, or some really interesting state statute that just came out in Arkansas, for example. Uh -huh, right. But so so really, um, really just trying to intelligently target what we write about is the, the biggest thing I think that I've, I've honed over the years. Whereas in that original, those original blog posts in 2012, oh yeah, we should have a blog. Let's get our name out. It's good for marketing. And it almost didn't matter what we were writing about. Whereas mm -hmm. now I really try to tailor it to, uh, I, I try to have a specific audience in mind for each post. Yeah. Although it's interesting because as you said, uh, Telemedicine is a big part of your practice, and I assume that is that means you could potentially be getting clients from anywhere in the country who practice in that area or who have telemedicine businesses. Uh, and you, uh, you mentioned even earlier that somebody, I think, from Washington uh, had uh, reached out to you at some point. So how do you kind of balance the fact that that your potential field of, of, of clients or interest in your blog could be national with that trying to keep it focused on a geographic region? Yeah, that's a good question, and and that and that really that's the great thing about a blog versus uh, in 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 years past we used to traipse around going to conferences and and market trying to market uh, in 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 at a physical location, whereas now you're you're available to, to everybody across the country. One of my larger telehealth clients is based in Illinois, um, so if uh, but yeah, really lately most of most of telehealth is driven by what the federal government does, even though there are state laws that are all over the map, uh, really since since March of, of last year, when, when COVID first uh, became commonplace, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has really been driving uh, developments in, in telehealth, even, even on the state level, indirectly. So, uh, so yeah, you're right, it's, it's uh, we, we do have clients. I, I do have clients in 15 or 20 states, and we do try to keep it interesting for for everybody. I, I guess if I if I had something that was particularly of interest to a client in another state, I probably would put it up there. So yeah. there, there's no rules, uh, and yeah. and uh, I, I do have a lot of a lot of flexibility on what we post. Yeah, and to some extent, it is it is true that that just 
what's that old advertising adage? You, you, you have to have your name appear in front of somebody seven times before, before it sticks or something like that. Yeah. The more within reason, the more we're in people's inboxes, the more mm -hmm. they get alerts and uh, monthly recaps of our blog posts, the more yeah. we're drumming into their heads that Rifkin Radler is a firm that has a large and vibrant healthcare practice. And yeah. if we tell them if we, if they learn something along the way, then that's even better. Yeah. So to what extent has the blog been effective in doing that? I mean, I asked you earlier whether your marketing department had seen the light on it, but what, what have you seen as the impact of blogging on, on your practice? It does, uh, among other things, it forces me to keep current on those newsletters that might otherwise pile up on my in my, in my inbox. And there have been times when, uh, when I, I've, I knew that there was something that I needed to learn for myself and for my own practice. And maybe it wouldn't have, I wouldn't have focused on it as, as much if not mm -hmm. for having to write a blog post about it. So for example, the no surprises act, uh, the, the federal law that came out last year that limits what are called surprise bills, surprise medical bills. When, when patients would get bills, uh, from out of network providers, when they didn't realize mm -hmm. they were being seen by an out of network provider. It's a very complex and frankly, poorly written statute, and there hasn't been sufficient guidance on it to date released by the federal government. So we did a blog post on it recently. One of my associates and I collaborated on it. And when I sat down to write the post, I really had to dig into the law in a way that I hadn't prior to that. So, so it is... It is an intellectual exercise, and it is uh, really an excuse to learn things that uh, to focus on things and become become conversant in them enough to explain them to a mainstream audience. Uh, it, so it's been it's been useful in that regard. Yeah, it's I, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. But uh, I've I've said it, and I've heard many bloggers say it that the idea that blogging makes you smarter <laughs> because it forces you into this kind of intellectual routine of of keeping up with something that uh, causes you to not not just keep up with it in a way that you might not otherwise be as diligent uh, at doing, but but to really understand it and digest it and, and make sense of it. Uh, what what about uh, just on your on your business development? Uh, side of your practice have, have you seen tangible results from blogging oh sure yeah yeah, yeah. people I, th I think clients appreciate uh appreciate that we're giving them useful information uh, i i have had more than a few new clients who who came to me just because they read a blog post uh and and i think others in my firm have have had have also told my colleagues hey you know Eric Fader or whoever whoever the other lawyer was who wrote a blog post, I, I, I read I read this post on such and such, and that's really great. Keep it up. So I think clients clients are aware of it. They they appreciate it, and uh, and you know blog posts are indexed in Google now, so I, you never know who's gonna who's gonna dig up a post from a year or two from uh, a year or two ago and and call you and say, hey, you know, could you explain what it, you wrote this couple of years ago, you know, what, what did you mean by that? And I, I probably don't remember offhand. I'll have to go back and read the post myself, but it definitely puts you out there, uh, in a way that, that, that you can't be just again, by going to physical conferences, which, which nobody is doing the last two years anyway. So it, it has, 
uh, we created um, the Rifkin Rounds blog before COVID, but it really made the, the pandemic and, uh, and marketing our practice to people during the pandemic a lot easier. Yeah, that's great. It's always fascinating when those blogs you've long blog blog posts that you've long ago forgotten about resurface in somebody's Google search and and come back. Uh, I, I have a couple that I've written over the years that that consistently show up among my high, most highest, most highly trafficked posts, uh, primarily because they had some catchy title or something that happens to fit into what people are searching for on Google. But right, uh, it's always right. interesting. Uh, yeah. Any any other advice that you would uh, offer to other lawyers out there who are considering blogging or uh, just getting started in blogging? Yeah, I, I think I, I guess we've touched on some of these things already, but I'll I'll just I'll just put them I'll, I'll just say them one after another. Now, figure out who your target audience is. Uh, if you're writing mainly for other attorneys, then you can write in a style that you probably wouldn't use if you're if you're targeting mainly uh, clients or potential clients, don't waste time writing about things that don't matter to your most likely audience, whoever they are. Uh, don't, don't assume that anybody cares about something in the abstract if, if it's not targeted toward, toward their business or their practice. Uh, I, I always try to be, again, Lou Vlahos and others have different approaches, but I always try to be simple and straightforward keep it short, uh, two, three, four paragraphs, a couple of sentences a piece, no case citations. Uh, you know, it's not a law review article. Don't say in the event that if you mean if, <laughs> I mean, just things like that, just basic good writing, try to catch people's attention, try to, try to be fun where possible, try to, uh, try to be interesting. Don't let too much time go by without posting, which is what my marketing people were originally concerned about. Even when your billable work takes up all your time, uh, it really only takes a half hour or so to to write a, a blog post. If if it's just a quick hit, here's something that happened. Uh, call call one of us if you have any questions. Or it's um, it, it definitely. Um, it, it definitely gets you some marketing traction, and particularly if it's if it's on a, a platform like Lexblog, or if you repost it to Twitter or or or, uh, or LinkedIn, then you, your audience is really uh, infinite potential audience. Whereas running around uh, to to networking events to me is a waste of time. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent tips, all of them, and uh, really practical advice that people could can take away and, and put into practice. So I appreciate that. My pleasure. Anything else that you'd like to add about your blog or your practice or anything else before we wrap up? I think we pretty much covered the waterfront. I, I think, I, think uh, I mean, as, as I said before, health law is a really, is a really interesting area that is, that really is mainstream now. So uh, I, I wouldn't discourage someone from creating a blog for something that's not as mainstream like maritime law or whatever. But again, I, I think just you know, figure out, know your audience, figure out, figure out a way to distribute your blog posts uh, uh, to make them multi-purpose. So to repurpose them for client alerts or something else. And 
That's why uh, it, it really helps to have a great marketing team like we do. But but yeah, I, I've listened to a couple of your previous episodes with people who had similar stories where I, I wanted to form, a, uh, I wanted to start a blog. My firm wasn't behind it. So I left the firm and I'm now I'm doing it myself. So anybody can do it. Uh, there's no one size fits all. And it, it definitely, it's definitely a good idea to market your practice in whatever whatever way you feel like. Well, Eric, thank you so much for sharing uh, the story about your blog and your practice today. It's been my pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. And uh, I, I look forward to listening to, uh, to continued wisdom from others. So listeners, you can get your prescribed dose of health law news at Rivkin Rounds at uh, rivkinrounds.com. Thanks again to Eric uh, for joining me today. I really appreciated it. And uh, this was uh, episode 55 of This Week in Legal Blogging. You can get our full library of shows pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. But uh, you can also head over to lexblog.com slash twilled for This Week in Legal Blogging, T-W-I-L-B for outlines of each and every show and uh, when you're checking out the podcast if you want to give us a review we'd appreciate it on behalf of myself and all of the folks over at Lexblog this is Bob Ambrogi thanks for listening Mm -hmm.